Welcome to the Hands in Motion podcast, brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. Here we will discuss all things upper extremity therapy, from assessment to treatment, the latest research, the patient experience, and other topics related to the field of upper extremity rehab. Learn more and subscribe today at ASHT.org. Welcome back to another episode of Hands in Motion. I'm Kara Smith. And I'm Stephanie Strauss. On this episode, we are joined by Elliot Greenberg, a physical therapist who treats adolescent athletes. And one specific population he treats are kids who suffer from medial epicondyle apophysitis, commonly known as Little League Elbow. We will discuss risk factors for developing this condition, treatment techniques that upper extremity therapists can utilize, and the importance of patient and family education. Welcome to Hands in Motion, Elliot. Well, thanks for joining us, Elliot. We appreciate you being here. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Why don't you just start by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you practice, kind of how you ended up where you're at? Yeah, sure. So background on me, I did my entry-level training at Arcadia University and spent the kind of early several years of my career in kind of general outpatient orthopedics. I got the opportunity to specialize in pediatric and adolescent sports medicine at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I have been working since 2008. So been there in various locations, but at that shop the entire time. Got my orthopedic board specialty somewhere around 2009, I believe it was. And then kind of within that time period, working in an academic institution where I was, decided that I wanted to further my training a little bit. So I went back for my PhD as a part-time student. So I was continued to work full-time at CHOP, work, went to Nova Southeastern University where I did my PhD there and have since kind of evolved my role. So I'm kind of like academic clinician, I guess I would say. So in my full-time job at CHOP, I'm about 50% research and about 50% clinical time. And then I have an academic role at Arcadia University where I'm adjunct faculty there. And I teach in various capacities and kind of the wealth of programs that they offer, but kind of within their sports and their orthopedic and their pediatric curriculum is kind of where I'm actively engaged. Nice. So you're able to get a nice mix of just really the whole field of physical therapy academics and clinic time and research. Yeah, kind of settled into a nice, like kind of do it all landscape, which is great. It's overwhelming sometimes, but other times, you know, it's nice to be able to kind of utilize skill sets in all different areas, keeps you sharp, keep you challenged, keep you kind of like engaged. And it's kind of fun because clinical practice, keep my hand in clinical practice that informs, you know, research and then being able to kind of help with that translational stuff by bringing it into the education role in the academic environment. It's really, it's just, it's kind of a nice role that I get to fill and provide. And I have a really supportive environment that I work with and, you know, great clinicians that I get to team up with. So I think it's, yeah, overall, just a really nice place to be. That's great. So our episode today is focused on Little League Elbow. And obviously with your experience at CHOP, I'm sure that you have quite some experience with this. Why don't you just start out giving us kind of an intro to what the diagnosis is, just to kind of start there. Yeah, sure. So Lily Elbow, it's kind of the common term for medial epicondyle apophysitis, right? So this is a, it's a diagnosis that's exclusive to the skeletally immature athlete. So that medial epicondyle apophysis is, serves as an attachment site for anatomically for the omocolateral ligament, also for the kind of flexor pronator mass. So really important for kind of valgus stability in the elbow in the entire complex. 
And generally the vulnerability is among pitchers, you know, so this is a, when you're a young pitcher and you're exposing your arm to the kind of valgus or that kind of tensile forces or stresses that occur within the throwing motion, you get these cumulative microtrauma that occurs in, in the skeletally immature athlete. The apophysis is the weakest link in that chain. If you think of the apophysis and the attachment of the ligament, the attachment of the tendon muscle mass, that the weakest link for the skeletally immature athlete is the apophysis. So the stress is accumulating there, causes irritation in that growth plate, and it manifests itself with pain. And that's the experience on medial elbow pain within those young athletes. I know people call it little league elbow. Are you seeing it in other athletes, other kids? Is anyone else susceptible to this? And are y'all seeing this in your clinics? Yeah. And if you just think about it as valgus stress or tensile stress across the medial side of the elbow, it's any throwing athletes are going to be vulnerable for this. But, and I think people are kind of shying away from that little league elbow as a diagnosis. You know, it's kind of like a, just a common catch-all term for when kids come in with medial side of the elbow pain, you kind of just get that diagnosis per se of little league elbow. But yeah, other athletes, you know, softball players can absolutely have a medial epicondyl apophysitis football quarterbacks. So especially kids that are involved in, you know, maybe more camp work or to do a lot more like throwing volumes and the younger ages, even throwing football. So they are likely to have pain as well. And even younger kids like water polo players. So anything that's involving throwing mechanics, they're going to be the higher risk category for having this injury. Is there a certain age that it typically affects or that are they're more predisposed to having this injury occur? Yeah, definitely. So once they're skeletally mature, you can't have this injury, right? So usually that part of the elbow, that medial epicondyle is going to fuse somewhere around 15 to 16 years old, but your highest risk age category, this diagnosis is that 10 to 12 year old player is where you're going to see the highest prevalence of medial epicondyle apophysis, definitely. So when they present to whether it's you're kind of recognizing it as a therapist or if they're presenting first to to a physician, what are they coming with? What are their main complaints? Like how do we recognize this? So the main complaint's pain, right? And that's like and and it's really easy when you're like it hurts right there and they point right to that slant. <laughs> Pretty specific. And you're 10 to 12 years old and you're like, do you play a lot of baseball? And they're like, yes, you know. So you can kind of get that. But the earlier things that you might, you know, maybe not recognize. And unfortunately, elbow pain is really common in kids, right? Or shoulder pain, like just throwing arm pain is really common. So, and sometimes it's hard to understand, well, is this just normal pain? Like, and it goes away, right? Or is this something that there's a pathological process happening? And it's, it's sometimes hard. It's not an easy decision, but when that discomfort is localized, when it's right in that medial aspect of the elbow, and it's more consistent and it doesn't go away with rest, right? Then those are the, like the big kind of glaring, like, hey, make sure you go get checked out and look at this. This is potentially for an actual injury, not just kind of normal discomfort. But some of the earlier signs that you might see, kids might, they might start to lose velocity, which is sometimes a little bit harder to tell from just the kid's standpoint, but you might see a change in their performance. They may lose accuracy depending upon how you know, accurate they are to begin with it would be kind of hard to maybe figure that out. But but those could be those earlier signs. But pain definitely is the that red flag symbol that you want to say, hey, I need to go look at this. And especially if it's pain and it's tender to palpation and it's not dissipating, it becomes more consistent where they go. They have one throwing outing and they have pain and they rest and they try to have another throwing outing and they're like, no, it still hurts. You really want to get that kind of checked out earlier rather than later. Are coaches kind of tuned into this? Like you said, you would notice the change in the velocity of their throwing speed. So 
have you found a lot of coaches tuned into this or is it really the parents noticing it first or who really is the first one to find this besides the pain? Sorry. (laughs) Besides the pain. I don't know if I can really answer that question well enough because I'm not sure if I'm exposed enough into that early area of the diagnosis to truly have an accurate discussion. I will say that there's, you know, from a coaching standpoint, the kids that are the ones that develop this are the high volume players, right? These are the kids that are most likely they're playing for more than one team and they may have a separate pitching coach. And I think it really depends on kind of what level of play they're experiencing, whether or not a coach might have the insight to pick up on that. You know, if you think about your standard rec league coach, who's a you know mom or dad just out there trying to do their best to make sure the kids have a good time, they may not you know be equipped or be able to have the you know they might be worried about so many other aspects of the game to be able to focus specific attention on what one particular player is doing or experiencing. So most likely, it's the parents that would notice this, or the parents that would be engaged enough with the child to to say, "Are you having any pain? What's going on? We had a bad game," you know, and to maybe ask those exploratory questions or those deeper questions. So if you're not catching it early enough, obviously it starts out just with general pain and then it gets to that point where it's not going away. Is there long-term effects that can happen if it isn't addressed? So if this cumulative microtrauma can accumulate to the point or where you might on the extreme end of this is the kind of avulsion fracture that can occur. So if the forces generated are large enough or chronic enough, you can have a separation of the apophysis from the bone itself where now you've gone on to have this acute fracture, right? And then that definitely like changes the management and, you know, potential for need for even surgery or not. But that thankfully that's not that common, but it does definitely happen. So the recognition of this early on and trying to get on the right treatment pathway would be a key factor to making sure that that doesn't progress to that level. I think that the other, to your point, I think of like my just clinical experience is the longer these symptoms go on, right? The harder it is to resolve them, you know, and that the athlete gets themselves into a trickier situation of how do they continue to play their sport. Maybe they're trying to modify positions or they're trying to, I pitched less, but it still hurt, you know, but they just kind of prolong things. And then they get in this kind of tricky situation of, of their playing while injured. And then it's hard to figure out like for them activity modification for the, you know, the basic treatment, that's your kind of first thing is you've got to relieve them from throwing stressors. But I feel like the longer they kind of play within this muddy water, it gets difficult for them to delineate what's okay and what's not okay then as you start to get them into the kind of that treatment paradigm and move them forward. So as a physical therapist, I guess where in their process do you kind of step in and you get your kind of hands on these patients to help them in this process and get them back to playing? So yeah, typically it's after the initial diagnosis, there's a period of relative rest, activity modification, right? So we could see them, the referral for physical therapy, it depends on, you know, maybe who they engage with, what the initial practitioner is. If they go see a primary care physician, they may have a longer duration of time between diagnosis and referral to physical therapy potentially, or if they go right in, they're kind of seeing a, cause they might go to see that that primary care that may refer them to ortho. And then from ortho, they get referred to physical therapy. Whereas if they kind of intervene directly into that, maybe that pediatric sports medicine orthopedic, the referral for PT might be within, you know, the next day they would say, okay, here's your diagnosis, but I want you to get into PT right away. So the earlier, you know, there's no real, for just the kind of run of the mill 
puffositis, we can begin with them, you know, right away after diagnosis, because the mainstays of treatment is the first step is lots of education. First step is just education on activity modification. Typically, you know, these are pitchers that are, are involved here. So we have to bring them away from pitching. It will probably be okay to allow them to continue to take swings and, and do some hitting, which is typically not painful for these players. And we can still kind of keep them engaged in the game on some way, in some level, but we might have to modify, make sure that they're, they're not pitching. And then if their league allows them just to hit, or if we can just get them engaged in practice and they're not playing games right now, you know, the the earliest thing and maybe the most impactful thing we do early on as physical therapists is patient education and parent education on, on how to start to manage that athlete and keep them, you know, it's that sometimes a fine line to walk. We don't want to completely shut them down. We want to encourage activity as much as you can, but we got to make sure it's safe to allow this injury to heal in the way we need it to heal and kind of resolve as quickly as we can. So education on keeping them involved, but how to do that safely is a really impactful thing. And the first thing we would do. So you can do that very early on in the process. I think you make a good point of parent education as well. Because I think a lot of times, not only when you're working with kids, it's not only the child you're treating, but it's their parent too. I mean, they're the ones usually bring into the therapy. They're the ones, they have a vested interest in this as well. And getting their, their buy-in is just as important. So With that being said, how do you get these parents? I mean, I live in Texas and football and baseball are are a big deal. And these parents, I had a kid a few weeks ago that was like six years old and the parents were so worried about, oh, he just needs to get back to playing next week and thought, okay, he's six. (laughs) He's not 16. So how do you get these parents to buy into this as well, that they've spent a lot of money for these travel teams and, you know, we don't want to lose this money and they've got to play and we've got to travel. And how do you get them to kind of pump the brakes too, and recognize the, the necessity for this? Oh, the struggle is real. Like, it, it, it's, it's not, that's good. I'm glad to hear it's not just me, right? It's not just no. us. Like, you go to any pediatric conference and you have these same kind of conversation. And I wish I had the magic answer. I could just like say, oh, it's easy. You just do this, right? But it's never easy. And obviously, as you guys know, it's situation dependent. You might have one person that they're their number one priority is just, hey, I want my kid to be okay. I want them to be happy and playing ball makes them happy. But I know that right now they need to do this and that. And those are the easy ones, right? Those are the refreshing ones. And it kind of, you know, hey, they see the logic. This is cool. The other ones, it's tougher. All right, we can't pitch. Can we play third base? And now you, you really shouldn't play third base because, you know, you're throwing across field. You're doing that. Okay, what about outfield? The ball never gets hit to the outfield, you know? And then like, so you're <laughs> you're really trying to go through that education standpoint of kind of explaining the pathology to them, explaining that this is an injury that's consistent with overuse, right? And there's no other thing to blame for it, right? That the biggest risk factor is just the volume of throwing. And, you know, I don't like to use scare tactics, but saying like, this is a small injury right now. This is just like a small brush fire, right? But if we just continue to throw on this and you can risk some of those other things, that avulsion factor we already talked about, or having this prolonged kind of disability, right? It goes from this small brush fire to this raging forest fire. And that's a lot harder for us to deal with, right? And then then we have to take longer time off. We have to take a lot more drastic measures in order to resolve their symptoms. So trying to help them understand that, that there's potential long-term 
consequences if we don't address it correctly. And that the most effective way of their goal of getting you know, their kid back on the field is to really follow the kind of treatment pathway as we're kind of lining out. And that activity modification is a really, really important part of that to limit the stress associated with that. And I also try to let them know that I'm on your side. Like I want your kid to do everything they want to do. And I want to get them there as fast as I can get them there safely. I just try to make sure that they know that when they're ready to progress, I'm not holding them out unnecessarily. I'm not reducing their activity for no reason. Like as soon as they're ready to go, we'll plug them in and we'll get them moving, doing more. And it'll be an incremental process. And we'll be able to start to move them forward with smaller steps if when we can. But for right now, try to follow along with me and, and just spend some time to really just lay it out and talk about it. And, and hopefully that does the trick. Hopefully. Can't say it works all the time, but. Right. And then you may have to have that conversation two weeks later. Like, you know, <laughs> it's like, all right, are they ready now? Well, no, here's what we see now. You know, we're, we're better. Maybe we're not better. Here's where we are right now. And, you know, sometimes following kind of the explanation of you have to follow their physiology, the kid's physiology and their healing time frame. It's that bell-shaped curve. And, you know, they may read like, hey, it's six weeks and then they're back out. But for him, you know, it might be plus four weeks. So or, or him or her, we got, we got a little bit longer time. They may be a little bit shorter, but trying to help them kind of understand that these time frames may not match up exactly with the progress that we're seeing. So I'm curious, what is in your bag of tricks of treatment for this? Like what would be your clinical treatment plan of care? <laughs> it's, it's the basics. It's not fancy, right? So when they come in, I'll reiterate this again. I think patient parent education is the biggest thing we do, right? That is number one. We look at the basics, you know, we look at range of motion, look at strength, look at shoulder motion. You know, there's some potential that there a loss of shoulder external rotation or a lack of shoulder enough of internal rotation might be problematic in these populations. We'll look at it. We want to make sure that we're doing a kinetic chain evaluation. I think that's the one of the other pieces that's kind of missed within this kind of you're thinking about your 11 and your 12 year olds are the most likely to be diagnosed with this. You know, that's that time where we're starting to enter into our growth velocity is increasing. So we're getting changes in flexibility in lower extremities. We're getting changes in, in muscle strength and because of limb length, associated limb length changes, right? We're getting changes in balance and coordination. So what we want to make sure and the a biomechanical evaluation of throwing may be part of what you're doing later on. If you kind of have that expertise when you're putting someone back to throwing, but earlier on, you're just looking at hip and pelvic control, doing a single leg stance, singling squat, and looking at their ability to use their kinetic chain effectively to produce the power to deliver a pitch. And we know that the majority of your velocity should be coming from the generation of lower extremities and that kind of trunk and pelvic separation as you're pitching. And I think that making sure that we have a focus on rehab, that they're effectively utilizing their kinetic chain is going to help them reduce some of the stress across the arm and the shoulder and the elbow. So I think that that's, you know, if you're thinking bags of tricks, I'm a big fan of saying like, just do what we do best and do the basics first, make sure the building blocks are there, but make sure that we're not just tunnel visioning, right? It's an elbow injury. So we're just looking at the elbow. You know, this is a overuse problem in the, and throwing is the activity and that is a full body activity. So we need to make sure that we're looking at hip motion and hip flexibility and hip strength and balance and neuromuscular control and kind of, kind of all those things to make sure that we're addressing the athlete as a whole. That's good to know. As an OT, I am really not trained to look, you know, yes, we're trained to look proximally, but not to go that far. So that's, that's some good insight. So as you're working with these patients and 
I know you say like the first thing that bring these patients in is pain. Is that also kind of your guide as you're going through the treatment process or what is kind of telling you, okay, they're ready for the next step or, Hey, they are ready to start maybe a return to throwing program or what's sort of your kind of North star with, as you're taking them through a plan of care. That's a really good question. And I think it, there's probably a lot of things to look at. So one, I would, again, start with those basics and make sure that things are resolved. Things you saw that were problematic are either trending better or getting better. In terms of physical exam, in order to start a progressive throwing program or to reinitiate that, think about the kind of the concept of like incremental stressors as you're taking them through their rehab program. So at first, we're really kind of taking away as much stress from this area as we can. Then we're going to start with some some basic strengthening, and we're going to make sure that they're tolerating that well, meaning that we're not getting irritability. They're not having pain with resisted contractions when you're working on flexion or pronation or you know doing any kind of like bicep curl. And then you're going to look at physical exam standpoint, they should have no no tenderness to palpation. They should have no tenderness if you're doing a valgus stress across the elbow. They should be tolerating, kind of skipping back to what I was saying before, you should be tolerating your progression well at this point in time. So you've already done more aggressive strengthening and open chain. So we're doing some internal rotation at zero. We're doing external rotation at 90. We're introducing valgus stress across the elbow and they're feeling fine with that, right? We've done some precursor plyometric work where you're having them do some wall bounces or you're doing some some rebounder work with them in these more provocative positions where you're getting them up towards that that kind of like delivery 90-90 position at the arm and the shoulder. And then all this is being tolerated kind of well, right? And then we're going to look for strength assessment. We're going to make sure that they have adequate you know, shoulder strength and we're looking for, they should have no pain with resisted testing across any of the upper extremities. And you want to make sure that, you know, you specifically look at external rotation strength and within throwers, if you can quantify that using handheld dynamometry and kind of look for side to side symmetries, that's the, you know, kind of better thing for you to work off of. And then kind of that's when you're saying, okay, I feel confident, I feel comfortable. All this precursor work is there and they're not having any symptoms right now. Let's initiate a little bit of throwing and we're going to start with this part of the return to throwing program that we're going to go through. What is the typical length of a return to throwing program for these kids? I mean, I wouldn't think that it would be too quick, (laughs) although I'm sure they're quite eager, but what's kind of a typical length of time? It does vary between players, right? And you're monitoring symptoms based upon their response to throwing. You might have kind of pauses in your progression that you'll do. But I think you could think about, you know, ballpark it, you could say three to six weeks to get through it, definitely. Maybe even shorter than that. It depends on the athlete and how they're feeling, how they're progressing and what they're looking to get back to. Sometimes the player, the parent will be like, you know what, we're not going to pitch for the rest of the season. We're just going to get back to playing, you know, in the field a little bit. And that's great. So you can move them through a return to throwing program a little bit faster or quicker than the person that's looking to get back on the mound immediately you have to go through this kind of field progression and like your on mound progressions that might take a little bit, a little bit longer, but it's, you try and be specific to the individual and you definitely want to monitor their symptomatic response to throwing. And, and if they need more time to kind of acclimate to the stressors, then they're going to need more time. And you have to kind of be honest and take that time. Do you find because they are younger that they heal a little quicker than somebody who's older? (laughs) Well, you know, this is a young athlete injury, right? So there's not really older athletes. I will say that it's those people that have more prolonged symptoms or they've had elbow pain. This is their third bout of it. You know, those ones might take a little bit longer than others. 
but it's, you know, relative age is usually similar across all these, the diagnosis specific to medial epicondyle apophysitis. Do you often get kids that come back two and three times for the same thing? Maybe I'm not a good therapist, (laughs) but unfortunately, yeah, you do. Well, I mean, it's the nature of, I mean, you're going to keep doing the same thing. You know, it eventually does come back again. Yeah. And if you can't break the cycle, right? I mean, this is typically a diagnosis associated with overuse, right? And kind of the good thing and the bad thing, like if he's a good pitcher, the coaches are going to want to use them more often. And these are the kids that typically are the ones that are said, hey, you should come play for my travel team. So then they start picking up more time and more volume. And then, you know, hey, you might want to work with this pitching coach because they're going to get you even better than you are right now. And then there's more. So unfortunately, I feel like we do sometimes see a lot of kids coming back again for the same diagnosis sometimes. And, you know, is it my failure on education, you know, or that they're still throwing with these kind of high volumes and not following, you know, recommendations that are out there in terms of rest time and everything? Or is it, you know, they're a product of the environment that youth sports is in these days and they're a vulnerable player because of certain internal factors and, and that's how they're kind of manifesting with this injury. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not just baseball season anymore. It, it goes year round. So they don't really get a rest at all, especially if they're playing on travel teams and, you know, throughout the whole year. Yeah. And that's kind of the recommendations that are out there is eight months out of the year, you know, you want to make sure you're taking four months off from baseball and doing something else, right? Something that's not going to place the similar kind of stress across the upper extremity, right? So don't stop playing baseball and play tennis for the next four months, right? Because you're still going to be introducing that kind of stress, right? You want to do something completely different and give your arm that type of rest time. So that's one of the big recommendations that's out there in terms of preventing these injuries. You want to follow the pitch smart guidelines in terms of volume of pitches per game and then rest days, volume of pitches per season, volume of pitches per year. And uh, you know all these recommendations are researched and shown that you're above this level, you're at a higher risk. If you're below this level, you're at a much less risk. And, and I think you know those recommendations are important to make sure you follow. Yeah. I think that's a good point you make of the sports too, because I you do hear recommendations of playing multiple sports, not just specializing early on. But I think you make a good point of saying like, pick something that's a different motion or, I mean, because we've got quarterbacks that play football till December and then, oh, hey, it's baseball season in January. And they had maybe their three weeks off from school from their break. And then they're going right back into another throwing activity. So I think that's a, a good point to, as you're having that conversation with these patients to say, Hey, let's talk about what sport you're picking or what position you're going to be playing so that we can decrease that stress. Yeah, I agree completely with you and what you're seeing in Texas matches when we see here you know, in the Philadelphia <laughs> area. But and, and, and I think the message about sports specialization and the, you know, the downsides of it are out there. I think people are hearing that, but unfortunately I think that sometimes it's being kind of misinterpreted as, let me just introduce more sports, but not decrease some of the other volume, right? So you might have someone that, you know, oh, I'm playing soccer right now, but I'm still seeing my pitching coach, you know, one time a week, right? So they're still, they're not really effectively getting that rest. And as a younger athlete, you know, that diversity and that is important in their kind of sport choices and exposing their body to different demands. So since this is sort of an injury of of an age group, are these kids prone to other 
elbow injuries. I mean, yes, the ideal patient does the exercises, gains strength, keeps up their, you know, exercises and everything to like make sure their biomechanics are correct. But are they prone to other injuries as they become skeletally mature? Are they prone to other elbow injuries later on or even shoulder? You know, that's another really great question. I'm not aware of any research that longitudinally or maybe tried to track this and look at if kids had a apophyseal injury younger, does that make them more vulnerable? I don't know if it's out there. I'm just not, I'm not aware of anything to look at that. You could make an argument that if they maybe did have a widening of that growth plate that, you know, potentially you could be exposing that you could be changing the relationship of the UCL and how it might be able to stabilize the medial side of the elbow. So, you know, potentially there could be some risk factor there but I'm not aware of any research that specifically has looked at that. Maybe that's your next project. (laughs) (laughs) Spinning, spinning my wheels right down. Sounds sounds really daunting to do. (laughs) Yeah. No kidding. I'm sure. Yeah. To try to try to track that. So what would your advice be to coaches, to parents on preventing this? I mean, it sounds like obviously you've said overuse. So it sounds like decreasing that valgus stress. Is that your primary go-to prevention for this injury? We have identified risk factors, right? There's been lots of really good research that has done that and looked at kind of those external loads, external demands on the arm, right? And so my advice is, you know, in terms of prevention, right? The best thing to be to keep this from happening is follow the pitch smart guidelines. And that's going to tell you number of pitches per outing and rest days, you know, things that we know are bad in terms of risk factors for throwing injury, throwing related injuries in younger athletes, whether it's shoulder or elbow is showcases, right. And those are just add a lot more demand and throwing, right. So try and limit the amount of like of showcases that you're doing. Don't play for more than one team, try and keep that as minimal as you can, because it's just a lot more exposures that are out there when they're not pitching have them play a different field position. So that pitcher, the big problem is when kids play pitcher and catcher because the catcher's throwing every time a pitcher throws a ball, the catcher's doing the same thing, right? So then you're just doubling down the volume. So definitely don't do a pitcher and catcher combination. Make sure you're taking the recommendations of having four months off from a throwing related sport and keeping track of making sure that Sometimes the communication between a travel coach and a rec coach about when the players pitched and then trying to be able to communicate and say, hey, my son or daughter is available to pitch tonight or they're not because they were pitching in their other league. And that's just, it gets confusing. It gets hard to kind of track all this sometimes, but trying to be as on top of that as you can. That's like, that's all those things from the the external workload, right? And then you think about the internal workload of the athlete and when is vulnerability more? And I think, so we know that kids that are taller are more vulnerable to having this. So research has kind of shown that shoulder elbow injury is more common kids that are taller. That's probably might be related to pitch velocity. We know that kids that throw at higher velocities, there's more cumulative stress for the most part and higher velocity pitchers, especially those kids that are kind of elite for this age level. If they're throwing in the seventies, they're throwing like high seventies, like that is really amazing. And those kids, they're the ones that are going to want to get used more often. But if they're throwing at higher velocities, they're more vulnerable to this. So you may even want to cut down their throwing volumes a little bit more if all of a sudden, you know, if you have like one of these really high performing athletes. So knowing kind of that, that athlete's internal workload, there's a little bit of data to support that 
during these times of peak growth velocity that kids might be more vulnerable to injury in general. And you can think about that in the context of this too. So if you know that your son or daughter is in kind of in the middle of a growth spurt, you might have to be a little more cognizant of their external workloads. You might want to have to kind of decrease how much throwing they're doing at those points in times. And that's like a little laser focused on that athlete themselves, but just some things that if you're aware of it, it might pop up on your radar and you might be able to, you know, potentially intervene a little bit differently with your athlete in particular, rather than, you know, these larger recommendations. There's some really helpful, helpful tips. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. And I think for me with this conversation, I think one of the biggest things that you honed in on is education, education, education. And that's where it kind of starts with this diagnosis and with this treatment and even with and prevention of it. So I think that's a, a nice reminder. So thanks for for sharing that. So this has been a great conversation. We appreciate you joining us and educating us on this diagnosis and treatment for this patient population. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity being on. It's fun to talk about. And yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. You can listen on the ASHT website and or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple, Google, Amazon Music, and Spotify. Once subscribed, please rate and review the podcast to help us reach new listeners and continue to offer valuable, relevant content. You've been listening to Hands in Motion brought to you by the American Society of Hand Therapists. To learn more about ASHT and to subscribe to the show, please visit ASHT.org. We'll see you next time on the Hands in Motion podcast.